0: tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets.
1: Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, we're speaking with Aaron Volpati, a former NHL hockey player turned cognitive performance coach. Aaron has a story that defies odds, and it's made possible by a combination of his determination and visualizations he's lived through a number of life-changing events and has used deep visualization as a tool to achieve the kind of success that most of us only dream of i think you'll take from this conversation a real account of the power of your thoughts as well you'll get a glimpse into what it's actually like playing in the big league as a pro hockey player there's some really interesting stories he has now retired from hockey Aaron works with other pro athletes to overcome their anxieties and self-doubts using visualization techniques. His work and advice are highly applicable to those of us who endeavor to be pro athletes as entrepreneurs or executives. I'm sure you'll take a lot of actionable insights from this, so enjoy the conversation. And before we get started, I want to say thank you to our sponsor Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services and has been supporting the Canadian capital markets for well over 20 years. I can speak from my experience that the team strives to deliver on their promise of making it personal. So thanks again to the team at Olympia Trust Company and I encourage you to reach out at any time. You can find their contact information in the show notes.
0: Aaron, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Corey. It's good to be here. I'm looking forward to this interview. You and I got, you know, just a bit of time to know each other, uh, living in the same city of coincidentally, but I think there's so much to talk about, man, with your experience in the NHL, with you now moving in and having to go through like really a huge life-changing event and now focusing on coaching and visualization, which I think is so fascinating and applicable to both athletes and business. With that, man, I want to hand it over to you for an introduction. But then get into this career you've had. It's pretty wild.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I'm a former professional hockey player, played in the NHL for about five and a half years, a cognitive performance coach now. So I work with athletes, author. I got a book coming out in just under a month, actually, about my whole journey, which you know we can get into a little bit as well, and how I discovered visualization, which is an interesting one, to say the least. And yeah, just how it's affected my life in such a powerful way and led me to what I do now. And yeah, again, I think we can dive into the visualization piece more as we go. But yeah, I think there's tons of overlap and not just sports and business as a whole, but the visualization piece, like it applies to everything, right? It's not, I work with athletes, but I use it in my personal life now, which I'm not an athlete anymore, you know? I like to think I'm a decent squash and golf player, but, you know, I use it in everything, you know, whether it be you want to manifest something or anything like that. Right. Use the techniques to your advantage.
0: So take us back to like to where this kind of all came together when in before doing this interview here, I did some research on you saw this, like this great video of the history you have. I've seen you punch. So many people in the face. I've never talked to anybody who's punched as many people in the face as you have. Like you were a grinder as a hockey player, man. And, and you said that in one of your pieces as I was researching that you weren't really the best hockey player when you were young. Like it just didn't really fit. You know, it didn't really seem like the NHL was going to be something for you. But you went through that. You went through actually a couple of life changing events. So bring us all the way back and tell us about that and how you ended up in the NHL yeah man it's been uh, how much time do you got <laughs>
2: yeah <laughs> wow but no, yeah to, to your point of you know being an average hockey player yeah I grew up in Revelstoke and I was a good hockey player in Revelstoke I was above average but you know when you get into the bigger cities I mean Vernon was a big city for me as a kid but you know Kelowna Vancouver and I got cut from all the select teams, you know, not all of them, but a lot of them. Team BC stuff, you know, the things like that where you quickly realize that, you know, you're not in that upper echelon. You're, you know, you're maybe down in the middle kind of thing, right? So I was always a bit of a realist. I mean, yeah, would have I loved to play in the NHL? Like on my thinking as a kid, obviously I did. But yeah, but I, again, I kept it realistic. And for me, the my NHL was an NCAA scholarship. And I'm like, if I can do that, then I've made it. You know, I get a an education paid for. I get to play hockey till I'm, you know, in my early to mid-20s, right? And that was kind of my thinking. And so how the whole journey really started was it was in my second year in, in Vernon here playing junior A for the Vipers. And again, I fought my way into the league, really, literally fought. The game was a lot different than too, right? It's it was a mean, intimidating game. So that was a need for every team to have, you know, a bunch of those guys. Now there's none, really. And you know, when I was moving out of the NHL, it was slowly changing to maybe there'd be like one guy, right? But back then it was, you know, it had four, five, six guys on a team that provided that. So
0: you know like just dedicated bruisers kind of thing, eh? Totally. Yeah. Huh. Yeah.
2: Just intimidation, right? And so Yeah, so I'm in my second year in Vernon and we lose out in the league finals and then we do our, you know, annual week bender and go party and kind of the say goodbye to the boys and kick off to the summer kind of party, right? And I was pretty much a daredevil, you know, invincible like a lot of young men think they are, right? And I was always messing around with with fire and so the year before I was doing it was like a spin-off a Molotov cocktail so what I would do is I would chug a beer I would fill it full of gas and I'd put the lid back on and I would set it ever so gently obviously in the fire and it would you know shoot this flamethrower up in the air and I'd get everyone back and it was like this big explosion not the smartest thing obviously but that's just what I did I think it was I really just embodied the I guess you could say that fighter stereotype and I kind of let my ego grow a little bit and just really embodied being kind of that crazy guy. You know, I got attention from girls and you know, all these things that I just embodied it. Right. And, mm-hmm. and it kind of stroking my ego in a way. And so the next year, the second year I'm like, how can I make the guys are asking me like, when you going to do your pyro show again? And I said, yeah, yeah. And so in my head, I'm like, how can I make this bigger and better? And I'm like, well, more gas. And so I had, a Colt 45 bottle and a wine bottle full of gas. And I had them in my sweater pocket, you know, like the, the little kangaroo pouch or whatever in your, in your sweater. And I'm walking around, walking around, and all of a sudden I'm soaking wet. And I knew that, I mean, we were drinking, obviously, but I knew that I had gas on me. I didn't realize the dangers of the vapors and how much I had on me. And so I kept what I thought was a safe distance from the fire and you know maybe five minutes went by and I just I reeked like gas and I'm like I gotta get this sweater off and maybe I didn't want to litter and throw it in the woods or or maybe I was just wanted to see it burn up like I don't really know but I went to throw it in the fire kept what I thought was a safe distance away and yeah gave it a kick and it was just like and I just I lit up and yeah that's when my life changed and I just fight or flight took over and I bolted and I just ran. And I don't know why, but I think that natural reaction to fight or flight, like you can't fight a gas fire. You can't put it out. Right. So I just bolted and was obviously on fire for too long and did some you know, significant damage. And so there's a lot more to kind of what that looked like, but we were 30 minutes out of town with no cell service. So no one could call an ambulance or anything. So we had to find one of the guy's girlfriend's to she wasn't drinking to drive me to the hospital and you know when the I was in total shock like I wasn't in any pain in the moment but I knew that I had done some significant damage after like looking at everyone's faces and people were crying and you know plugging their nose because the smell is just oh yeah man it's yeah I can't even begin to explain how bad the smell is and then yeah so once the shock started wearing off I was blacking out at the pain was so bad. And then, so I ended up getting airlifted to Vancouver hospital that night, wake up. The first few days were pretty foggy. I don't remember a ton. And after my first a, a debridement procedure where they basically like pressure wash you and cut you open with scalpels to relieve pressure. Cause when you have third degree burns that the pressure and the trauma, you just turn into this like big. Blister almost, and they have to cut you open and relieve pressure, and hose you down and slough off all the necrotic tissue to keep those future skin graft sites clean. Right? Mm. No, just for
0: quantity to quantify this. This was forty percent of your body.
2: Yeah, so I was forty percent. Well, I was a hundred percent burned. Like my face, everything from first degree to third degree, hundred percent. But I was forty percent second and third degree. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, like I said, I was on fire enough to do some pretty significant damage. And, yeah, sorry not to get too graphic with your viewers, but I think it (laughs) helps paint the picture where I was in pretty bad shape. And so, yeah, it was like the third day, I think, I came out of that. Obviously, you're not awake for this debridement procedure that I'm talking about because it's, yeah, it's, I can't imagine the pain. But so I come out of this procedure and the doctor's kind of relaying everything. He's like, you're going to be in here for a while. You're lucky. We're not going to have to skin graft. It doesn't look like over any of your joints, like your kneecap or your elbows, because that's when you run into problems, right? With mobility. And yeah, he's like, you're making a full recovery. It's going to be a long recovery. And I just remember the first thing I asked was we have camp in, you know, three, four months. That was the first thing that came to my head because again, I was chasing that scholarship. And I was 20, so or I was almost 20. I was like a few weeks away from 20 years old. So I only had one more year of eligibility left in junior. And I hadn't talked to a single NCAA scout yet. Because again, I didn't they didn't really have a reason to because I was a fighter and I I could skate and hit, but it wasn't exactly what they're looking. You can't fight in college. So, you know, you had to have other tools in the toolbox. And so yeah, I asked this doctor and I'll never forget the look on his face. And he just was like, he kind of froze for a moment. Like this poor kid thinks he's he's going to play hockey again. And he just said, listen, like these recoveries take years, not months. Like you're not going to be playing hockey in, in a few months. And so that was it for me. My career was over. And it was kind of this balance of being thankful that I wasn't, you know, I was going to live a relatively normal life after and have some gnarly scars to tell a story. But, you know, my face isn't going to be deformed which it could have been it could have been a lot worse so I was trying to balance that with you know the depressing fact that hockey's over right and that's it
0: what was that mentally like can you describe the thought process just going through that because I think you know a lot of people we've all made mistakes in our life and have regret you know thankfully not nearly as bad as what you've been through but how do you get through that or how did you get through that
2: Yeah, so it wasn't great for the first two weeks. I mean, aside from the debilitating pain, (laughs) that was probably the biggest thing. You know, just constant pain that just never, never leaves. The burn unit is, I always say it's one of the, the most special places, but it's also one of the most terrifying because there's people in there that are fighting for their lives. And it's like people screaming all day, all night. And it's, yeah, so it's a pretty rough place, but. So that didn't necessarily help with how shitty I was feeling and you know trying to to cope with this new reality, you know, I'm thinking like okay, hockey's over. What am I going to do with my life, right? And thinking like should I go get a trade? Should I go to school? Right? I was really thinking like what what should I do? And it was hard not to let that hockey piece go, but I didn't really have a choice I thought in that moment. And then everything changed. And for me, like I've had very defining moments or or like forks in the road of like, make a choice and go one way or the other. And my first one came two weeks into that stay in the burn unit. And my coach called me. And he was like, you know, how you doing? And I said, well, not good, not great, obviously. And he said, I was just talking to the assistant coach from Brown University, and we were talking, and he—they're after this type of player. His exact words were, "We need a player to put the fear of God in the defenseman of the Ivy League." And my coach is like telling me, "He's like, well, I have the perfect guy for you." There's one problem—he's burnt himself to a crisp, and he's in—he's in the burn unit in Vancouver. And so he said, "Listen, just give him a call. They obviously know the circumstances and." He's like, just give him a call. He's like, I know you got the time, call him. And so I called this coach from Brown and it was left really open ended. They just said, you know, we're sorry to hear what happened. We wish you the best in recovery. And, you know, we'd love to see you play one day or something, you know, knowing that that wasn't going to happen really for me at least. And so I remember hanging up the foot wide. My parents were holding, I, I was wrapped like a mummy. So I couldn't do anything. I was bedridden. So my parents take the phone away and just, I just remember I started thinking and, and talking to my parents a little bit. And I'm like, man, I've worked my whole life to like talk to one scout from the NCAA. And and here I am and, and look what I've done to myself. Look where I am. And then I started asking questions to myself of, okay, here's this big list of reasons why they're telling me I can't play hockey. I mean, the list went on and on. It was obviously going to hurt a lot. The infection was a really big risk. The skin grafts were going to be too fresh. Like the maturation and the healing process for those is just long by nature and so that's going to be too fresh too restricting i wouldn't be able to sweat properly from those areas right i was going to be in a full body suit for two years so yeah the list just went on and on and i just i kept thinking about you know how i worked my whole life to just have this opportunity and i just decided that those weren't good enough reasons you know for me to just say i'm gonna stop playing hockey and So, yeah, that's when I made a choice that day and I just decided, no, that's not going to be me. And again, if you're telling me that it's going to hurt too much, it can't be worse than what I went through, you know, for the last two weeks. And if I get a, you know, really bad infection, I'll deal with that when the time comes. And, you know, that was kind of my thinking. I was really willing to die before I quit after I made that that choice. And so I did. I made that choice. And then, but you got to remember, I was bedridden. So I could not move. So all I could do was think all day. And prior to that, it was trying to deal with the pain mostly and battle through that, but also just focusing on all the negative stuff, right? Like, you know, what's my life going to look like? Just feeding that negative voice. And for me, I had to flip that. And that's how I discovered visualization. So people ask me, you know, how did you discover or come across visualization? And this is how I didn't really have a choice. And, you know, I had heard about it and yeah. things like that, but I never like had, had read up on it or anything like that.
0: Being bedridden, not being able to move, not being able to engage with anything other than what's in your head. Right. Yeah. Wow.
2: That's how it happened. And so I, I visualized religiously, like all, not all day long, but, you know, multiple times a day for a significant time of just, I figured that was the only way out. It was the only way out for me because I couldn't move. So, right. I was trying to do chin-ups on my, there's like a bar on the top of the beds in the burn unit. So eventually I would start trying to do chin-ups, which like I lost probably 40, 50 pounds in there. I couldn't do one chin-up and my hands were raw. So, I mean, after a week or two after that, that's the only thing I could really do movement wise. But yeah, man, I would just, I would visualize everything that I wanted to. And I soon realized that thinking about it was one thing but creating like the experience in your mind was so powerful and you know having it vivid and you know almost like a movie which is actually what i teach now right is like that that movie right the story the story work visualization but i didn't realize this at the time but i would visualize three things i would visualize the first was healing i knew i had to heal to to be able to play so i would spend like yeah, I would spend a long time just visualizing like healing from a cellular level, like hmm. you know myself being nourished. Those skin graft, those third degree burn areas shrinking, shrinking. And people think I'm crazy, but I know that that helped me get out of there sooner than I was supposed to because I left way sooner than they told me I was going to leave. The second thing I visualized was coming back to play in the home opener that fall with the Vipers. So again, you know, creating that experience putting on my gear, being around the guys. What do I see? What do I hear? What do I feel? Smell, taste, every sense, you know. And the last thing I visualized was signing that commitment letter to Brown. And I, you know, visualized myself being on the phone, talking to the coach from Brown, talking to my parents and feeling the joy, you know, especially after coming back from what I had been through. And feeling the pen and the paper signing that letter and seeing it and just, again, making it very real and creating more of an experience than a thought. And it worked, which is there's a lot more to the whole recovery that year. I mean, I had kidney stones the day after I got out of the hospital. I had an appendectomy that summer. They had to cut through my skin graft to get it out and stitch the skin graft back up. I was on crutches coming to and from the rink every game. Like I was holding on by a thread. And, you know, I knew that Brown was coming to watch me play. Like this is when you could get shot up with every painkiller you wanted. So just to play, I was getting toward all core zone just so I could play. And, you know, I could barely walk. And so uh, the doctors were right. I shouldn't have been playing. But
0: where do you think you got that defiance and that just persistence to push through the perseverance? Yeah, I think I definitely had
2: a starting point in my life with my parents. You know, my dad especially taught me to, I guess, stand up for yourself and win that stand up, you know, for what I believed in. And I think that was definitely instilled in me at a young age. But really, the defiance came with this such determined purpose of like, again, I was willing to die before I gave up on that scholarship. And so there was just no other option for me. And again, the pain, yeah, I, that's just something that I battled through because, again, there was no other choice or option for me. So that's more what it came from. But I did have, I think, a higher starting point in life with my dad and especially and how I was raised. But
0: hmm. So take us from Brown and into the NHL. I'm very curious about this, and I'm sure – The listeners are as well like you somehow you push through and then you're on the doorstep of being recruited into the nhl and there's a few things that when we talked off record before that i thought were really fascinating about that experience what was it like when you first got into the nhl and what were those five years like
2: yeah so this is where i had my other kind of defining moment when i got to brown well first of all when i got my scholarship i shut it down for the season so i You know, I think I played like 20 games my last year of junior and I got what I set out to do. And then it was like, okay, I need to, my body was clearly fighting back and had all these issues going on. So I chilled and got healthy. And then I went to Brown and yeah, honestly, because you got to remember that was my NHL. I had made it. So, and my perspective on life had changed a lot too. And when you go through an experience like that, you know, it wouldn't have been much longer before, you know, I could have died. Right. So yeah, perspective on life had changed. So I got to Brown and I just, I just had fun, man. Like I worked my ass off. I was, you know, in the best shape on the team and played my role, played that third, fourth line role. But yeah, I just enjoyed the U.S. college experience and had a blast and yeah, and soaked it all in. And so I didn't think hockey was going to be an option. I never even crossed my mind to play hockey after that. And my next moment came after my junior year. We finished our season and the assistant coach came up to me and he said, you know, have you ever thought about playing pro hockey? And so I was 24 at the time. So, you know, most guys are already there. Right. And so I laughed and I said, no, I've never thought about it. Well, I don't have a reason to think that I would play pro hockey. And he said, you know, we've had some a few American League teams, which is the league below the NHL. Ask about you, and I was like, "Wow, okay." And he said, "I think you could have a you know a solid five ten year career, and in the American League, if you really worked on your game, and who knows, like maybe you get a shot in the show one day." He's like, "No one. I've never seen anyone hit like you can hit, and if you can just add some of those other elements to the, your game, I really think you could do something." And I, so I thought, "Holy shit! Like I never even thought about it. Like me, a small town kid from Revelstoke, and..." gone through all that and again I scored one goal in my first year of junior a like I didn't have a reason to ever think pro hockey really and so I went home that night and first thing I thought of was that experience in the burn unit and I'm like if I can do that if I can come back from that injury to come back and play hockey you know why can't I play in the NHL and I just made a decision again that that night I said well let's do it then I'm going to do this And I had let that whole visualization, hellbent attitude, defiant attitude go those first three years at Brown because I had made it. So I didn't have the wherewithal to think, you know, what's next? What else could I do? I was just too young and immature. And But when I had this moment, I went back and I thought, okay, what do I know? And it's the power of the mind and the visualization piece, right? So that's, I reverted back to all of that. I called my parents. I'm not coming home this summer. I'm going to live at the arena. And I'm going to make sure this happens. And I did. And it's just, yeah, it was just crazy how it it proved itself true another time for me. And I've had more of these (laughs) moments after retirement. But yeah, so in one year, I went from no one in the NHL knowing who I was to my last year at Brown, everyone and, you know, having multiple contract offers and having this crazy senior year. and, And it just, it took one good year and then I was off, so... Wow. It's
0: really interesting. You know, I think there's such a, people are so afraid of adversity. They're so afraid of going through very difficult times, but they're the catalysts for building strength that make future things just easy. And then when you face that adversity again, it's like, oh no, I've been here. And so I think it's such a great story of it because like everybody needs to hear this and be reminded of it because I think they can all reflect back on when they've gone through hard times and the strength they pulled out of it.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I would say, and that's a the main theme of my book really too is about is just adversities. It's a disguised gift, right? And you don't know it in the moment, but if you can have that mindset and reflect back, you'll reflect back one day and be thankful for those times. And, you know, I think visualization especially can help you unwrap that gift. Does that make sense? And that'll help you, you know, have the confidence and trust in your journey of where you want to get to or go to. And then, you reflect back and you're like, well, I wouldn't have done this without the adversity piece. Right. And so I think, yeah, it's, it's hugely important. And a lot of people, you know, we shield ourselves from it. We shield our kids from it. I don't think that's right. I think that's a mistake. Yeah. 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 I think it's a huge problem actually to be honest in this world. I think it's a massive problem. I'm not advocating you go play with fire and light yourself up, but you know, life's going to happen, man. And whether you like it or not, that, adversity is coming and so yeah you can't shield yourself from that or shield our kids from it so
0: I've got a question about I want to talk more like about your experience in the NHL I think it's because it's it's really interesting and I'll be frank I'm not a huge hockey fan but I think it's a fascinating world it's a fascinating industry and one of the quotes that I saw was Daniel Sandin he said you're a true competitor a fierce player on the ice and a great teammate off the ice and it was the nuance between on and off the ice where I was like, I wonder what the difference is there. And and tell me about those experiences and, and what was it like on the ice and then in the team room kind of thing?
2: Yeah, I think for a lot of guys, myself included, especially with the role that I played was and a lot of fighters and enforcers will tell you the same thing. You have to be a totally different person on the ice than who you are off the ice. So you almost live to, you have an alter ego, essentially. And, wow. Okay. Right? Well, you do because you can't and for me that was always a struggle with fighting, especially like so there's two ways to have a fight in the NHL or professional hockey, and which is less prevalent now, but it's you know, you're trying to set the tone for a game or you fight the other enforcer. It's it's almost like a pissing contest a little okay. bit, right? I'm tougher than I'm tougher than you, but it's more like I wanna give my team the early edge and we're gonna get in the fight. And so you line up beside each other, and you say, "Hey, you want to go?" And say, "Yeah, yeah, okay, sure." And you square off, and you do the dance, and and you
0: fight. You're telling me at the you know the center line or the blue line, you're shoulder to shoulder, and you have this conversation, and then the puck yeah, drops, and you drop your gloves, and you both know you're going in, and you're going
2: to trade bare knuckle punches in front of twenty thousand people. Yeah, amazing. And, huh. and so for me, that was always a really tough switch to turn on in those type of fights. Because, I mean, for a lot of reasons, you don't want to get knocked out in front of 20,000 people. And for me, I'm not a huge guy. I was fighting guys that were like four or five inches bigger and 40 pounds heavier, right? So I'm like, you know, if I get hit the wrong way here, I'm going to be sleeping. And I don't want to get A, sent down to the minors because of that. And B, have a concussion. And C, get embarrassed, you know? So you have that. but. It was really tough for me to turn on that switch in those type of fights versus the ones where, let's say I run a guy over with a hit and I get it. Some guy comes and whacks me and I'm already amped up and those wires have already crossed. And so I fared much better in those fights than the other ones because it's almost like you had to get punched in the face a few times to really wake up, you know? Yeah, yeah. Hey, that's that's so
0: interesting. Yeah. Okay.
2: (laughs) So... And you're just so laser focused on, you know, playing. You don't want to obviously make a mistake. You're playing in the NHL, right? And then you almost have to turn all of that off away from the rink because you'd go mad if you didn't.
0: Was there conversations like you're about to go on. It's about game time. You're in the, you know, the coach is there and, you know, it looks over you. And I think your nickname was Patty. It's like, Patty, K. Okay, I need you to go light that guy up right off. Like we need to set the tone. Was that the kind of narrative that would be had in the it's the dressing room, not the team room? Jesus. I, <laughs> so yeah. yeah. It, was- it
2: wasn't really like that. It was more just you as a person in that role, you already know if there's someone that needs to tended to, or you know what I mean? Or if they got to tell you, then you're probably not doing your job. I think that existed more even before my time where they would say, Hey, You know, but again, it's pretty the writings on the wall for who, you know, you're going to maybe match up against. Or if there was, say, a guy laid a cheap shot on one of your better players in a game prior. Yeah, if you're on the ice against that guy, you know, there's probably a reason for it. But I mean, the camaraderie and, and the dressing room stuff is probably what I miss most. And, you know, it's like that brotherhood and you get to, yeah, you just get to be you and be around the guys. And not that you couldn't do that on the ice, but yeah, I know for me, I had to get in that you had to get in this alter ego and leave that world. Right. Mm -hmm. So that was definitely a tricky balance.
0: I think. I'm curious about life lessons that you've been able to take from hockey, things that it taught you and how you're applying them now to everyday life.
2: Yeah. Everything. Honestly, I think there's overlap and in pretty much everything, I think the big ones that would stick out are, you know, trusting the the process. You know, it's a long game, you know. Yeah. What do you mean by that? I mean, success doesn't happen overnight. Right. And I think for me in hockey, that was especially true because I was such a late bloomer. I went through all this adversity and I didn't make it to the NHL until I was 25. Right. And so just understanding that it's kind of the the sum of the habits every day, right? What's going to get you there? And I think that's true in, in business and, and what I'm doing now, right? It's funny, when I started this venture a couple of years ago, I started writing my book and launched my business and did some speaking. And I was like, I'm going to just do everything right away. and And it's forced me to remember, like, this takes time. You got to lay foundation and, you know, and put all these things in place. To have success, right? So I think that's a big one. Routine, I think routine's a really big one. You know, with hockey, everything was just so regimented. Like we knew what we were doing every minute of a game day and a practice day, right? You have free time on practice days, you know, for you're at the rink, say from eight till noon or one, but then you have the rest of the day that's yours. But when you're at the rink, you know, like we're having a team meeting now here, we're having Video here. We're having our workout here. We're on the ice here. We're doing more video here. And game days, it's like be on the bus ten fifteen. We're gonna eat at this time. We're gonna meet. Like everything is just very regimented, and so you're forced to have routine through that. And I think that served me well after hockey. Is just having those routines, especially in the morning, for me is a big one, and kind of like winning that the day early and, and setting that intention right. So I think that's a big one. Yeah, there's so many. I mean, I think the grit in hockey has spilled over for me into professional life and business. And just sometimes it's just about putting your head down and doing shit other people don't want to do to be successful. And I have that mentality. And I think that, I mean, even in your world, you know, the successful people, a lot of times they're just so determined and they're doing stuff you don't want to do. Whether it be getting up early or, you know, taking care of your health or, you know, doing some extra education at 10 o'clock at night or when you got to put the kids to bed and you don't have any other time. And they're, you know, it could be anything, but I think that's a big one too, is just, there's not really a secret really to success, right? It's just, it's what, so true. It's just, what are you willing to do and understand that this is going to take a while and it's going to get uncomfortable and most people can't handle that. And that's the reason that, you know, they don't end up getting maybe where they want to go.
0: You know, that reminds me of, I think it was Muhammad Ali saying that he hated every moment of training, but he was just doing it. You're not, because supposed, he wanted to be
2: to, you're not supposed to enjoy it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You're not uh. supposed to enjoy it. Yeah. He had a good one too, that I use a lot of his quotes is, this might be verbatim, but it was like, people always, Yeah, I can't or no, he said under people only see me dance under the lights. They don't see, you know, me out on the street at night in the ring, in the gym when everyone else is sleeping or whatever. That's not exactly what it is. But yeah, basically saying people only see the finished product. Yeah. Right. And they think, Oh, you know, how nice for that person. You must have just got luckier. They got everything handed to them and sure that exists in the world, but you know, again, they just don't see the process right that went into the outcome and you like countless hours that to be who he was or like I know I read I'm not Muhammad Ali but I resonate with that where yeah like really I made it because I went through shit and did shit that no one else would do really yeah, because I wasn't that good I had to go through that in order to find that in me right and and push through that and make it
0: with that so let's talk about I think a, a very pivotal time in your life and your career and that was when you got injured on the ice neck injury, and your whole career and identity was effectively upturned on the spot. Yeah. What were the days like after that, the days, the weeks, the months after that? Because I think that for people who have businesses and things go sideways or a career and it goes sideways, a marriage and goes sideways, our identities are so deeply tied to that status quo that we knew. And when it gets turned over, it can be devastating. So how did you handle that? And what were some of the experiences like?
2: Yeah. So that was probably the toughest time in my life was after hockey and just not knowing how to deal with the, like even the spiritual and emotional adversity. I'd gone through a lot of the physical and mental adversity and and dealt with that. But yeah, the events for me after retirement just kept, they kept hitting me hard. And so the first was obviously this neck injury and yeah, you're hockey player for 30 years and it's over like that right and it's it's like you said that identity is stripped away and so you really you lose that you feel lost and a lot of guys that retire from the game struggle with that right and but it's not just athletics right it can be anything if you have an identity and it, it gets stripped away from you whatever however that happens yeah it's tough to deal with so i had that and then through all of this i had like family disease some scares, you know, health wise, I was going through a divorce, it just kept piling on for me. And I got to a point where I was at such rock bottom. And I'm like, man, I like two years ago, I was playing in the NHL, you know, happily married, all these things, life was good. I didn't have a care in the world. Aside from, you know, some of the anxieties with fighting in the NHL and what that looks like, which is a whole other thing. But You know, otherwise, you know, life was great. No adversity, really. And then it just kept piling on, piling on. Right. And and I was kind of like, how did I get here? Like, what happened? It just happened. It seemed like overnight. Right. And it was it was quick. And so for me, I had to go. And this is, again, another just moment where I had to go and I, I used, you know, those experiences of adversity in my past. And I'm like, okay, what do I know? And it was the power again of of the mind and stop wallowing in, in your shit and focus on what's good in your life and what you want to happen. And as soon as I did that, everything changed again. Right. And I met my now wife like a month after that. And for me, after retirement, I was seeking out some of that physical adversity. And so this is when I worked in wealth management, too. So we have some overlap there. It was just a really bad time in my life to be starting a new gig let alone you know like an office gig that I had no experience with and the walls around me were just crumbling down yeah and so yeah I ended up leaving that and I was like I need some physical adversity so I ended up doing an Ironman triathlon and raising money for ALS which is what my dad got diagnosed with shortly after I retired as well and so that was aside from you know a good distraction for me to have like that purpose and that regimented training that I missed. I was able to obviously raise money for a good cause and and all of that. And then, yeah, and then everything just changed, right? And I went back to, again, visualizing, okay, what do I want in this life, right? And just focusing on that and really writing that new movie for me, right, in my mind and what that looks like.
0: I want to talk about the cognitive piece and the cognitive performance coaching you're doing. But before that, I just want to hit on a question and talk about some of the like the mental aspects as well of fighting in the NHL and the anxieties that come along with it. You mentioned that. Yeah. What was that like? And how did you tackle that anxiety? Probably my first two,
2: two and a half years in pro, it it didn't affect me too much. I enjoyed being that guy and I was pretty good at it, you know, too. So yeah, it didn't affect me then. And it really but it started wearing on me when it was more just like you don't get any reprieve from it, right? It's not like boxing or the UFC, say, where you have one or two fights a year and and you're training, obviously, but like that moment, that big fight for in the NHL, that's possibly happening three nights a week, right? So as soon as the one ends, it's like, okay, I can finally just focus on playing the rest of this game, which you know, it's hard to, until you get in that fight, because you know that that other guy's over there and, you know, like, am I going to fight him? When am I going to fight him? And you forget you have to play the game first, mm, right? Right. So yeah, once that fight happens, you're always on to the next one, right? If I know I'm playing whoever, New York on Tuesday, that game ends, and then we're in St. Louis on Thursday, I'm already thinking about Thursday. and then. I'm having a hard time falling asleep every night and napping before the game because I'm thinking about, they had that one guy, he's 6'5", 245. So he's way bigger than I am. And then you're just, you're thinking like, you know, my head doesn't, this is when concussions weren't, you know, there wasn't enough awareness around it, right? And so for me, if I got my bell rung, the last thing I wanted to do was say, you know, I don't feel quite right because for all I know, they'd just send me down. Right, to the
0: minors. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That pressure of like the so commitment. there's the pressure.
2: To, well, yeah. And for me, especially because I was that fourth line guy, I was I was very easily replaceable by someone else in the minors or overseas or wherever. Right. And so for me, it was always trying to find the balance of that. And Hey, okay, yeah, I'll just I'll play through it. You know, your hands are all messed up from the maybe the fight before that. And yeah, there's always that thought like my head could use a break. I don't want to get knocked out in front of 20,000 people. I'd rather just like play the game tonight, but it's, so it's always just lingering there. Right. That thought of that next fight. So yeah, it just, it started to spill over into, you know, your life away from the rink. And that's really when it started affecting me more. Right. When you just can't escape that thought of, you know, fighting maybe that guy, like maybe he's a lefty and you're like, okay, so what do I got to do different here? And, you know, going through that. So Yeah. It's not always smooth sailing. Like some people might think there's a ton of pressure, right. To perform.
0: Yeah. It sounds like, I mean, one, it's not glorious when you start to kind of peel back the onion and the other would be, I remember you saying to me like the first two years in the NHL, it wasn't until you finally two years in, you got a letter saying, Oh yeah, you can go find yourself a home now. Yeah. yeah. And so just talk about being on pins and needles. Not knowing like every day you walk into your job and one, you got to fight a guy. And if you don't fight a guy, you are potentially going to get put down. And like, that's got to yeah, carry a lot of, you know, a lot yeah. of weight on you.
2: Yeah. I come to the rink almost every day for most of my career, wondering if I was going to be there that day. Right. And just cause you're on, you're, you're a bubble guy and there's, you know, whatever 700 plus players in the whole world that play in the NHL. There's a whole hell of a lot more that, you know, are really close and they, they might take your job tomorrow. Right.
0: Yeah. And eager and hungry too. Yeah.
2: Right. Or maybe they're a younger, cheaper version than you too. Right. So with the salary cap and everything, right. Team, it's a bit of a puzzle for the management to put together a team. And so, yeah, like if I get healthy scratch, if I'm not playing and my name's not on the lineup board, then of course I'm wondering, does that mean I'm going to be sent down? you know, which eventually it sometimes did mean that. But yeah, it's tough. It definitely weighs on you, right? Just that instability. And then to your point of, it's just such a business. And I think a lot of people maybe don't realize how much so where, yeah, you're just an asset really. And like I got that letter to find a place to live and found a place to live and then got shipped off a week later, you know, and, wow. just, yeah. Yeah, and then yeah, I was in DC a week later. So yeah, it's just the way it goes.
0: Listen, we're nearing our time here. How are you for time? Do you got to bounce or? No, I got like 15 minutes. So really. Okay. Let's get so a bit into here. the book and a bit into the cognitive performance coaching you do and putting this together because, you know, I think a lot of us have heard about visualization, but who actually puts it to work and you have, you've got the experience and now you're training in it. So tell us about it, what should we know and how can it change or change you?
2: Yeah, yeah. So I teach, I call it cinematic mind mapping or like story work visualization, right? And exactly to your point, a lot of people know about visualization, but they don't know how to or why maybe they should do it or, you know, when to practice it, all these types of things. And yeah, for me, I work with athletes. So I teach this program where we essentially write, I get my clients to be the director of the movie of their life, right? So every week is like a layer or a a chapter or a scene added to this movie, right? And then you visualize that every day. And again, it's important to really create the experience. That's the big thing that we hit on is create the experience, right? So think about, you know, maybe really good movies that you've seen. What do they all have in common? They evoke emotion in you, right? And in order to evoke emotion, you need to have the experience. And that's where people get lost as if I'm, yeah, your thoughts matter, but if I'm just thinking and I feel nothing, you don't tap into that subconscious, right? You're just consciously thinking, which isn't going to leave any lasting change. So experience equals emotion, right? And that's when you really can start affecting the way, you know, you feel and the energy you put out into the world, right?
0: Yeah. You know, I want to just tap into this. I got pulled into coaching a vice president of a company recently who is out there raising money. And I said, I want, you know, I want you to envision what it's like walking into that boardroom. And I want you to own that boardroom. And the point being, and and really when you look at it and you've, you've seen yourself walk in there already, you've seen the people who are there and you know where you're going to stand and you can, it allows you to walk in there with a confidence, which opens the door to serendipity. Whereas if you haven't envisioned and you haven't taken the time to think through that playbook of what's going to happen, you're almost lost and perhaps even on the back foot kind of thing and in a position where people don't look at you as confidently as you should get.
2: Yeah. No, you're bang on there. And that's a big part of the program that I teach, right? Is, and the cool thing is your brain doesn't actually know the difference of, well, again, I work with athletes, so I'm going to use it as an example, but your brain doesn't know the difference of you physically practicing A skill versus mentally rehearsing it. It doesn't know the difference if it's vivid and real. And that's where the practice comes in, right? And so for me and the athletes I work with, just to what you said, we pick three areas in their sport and there's different iterations in those areas. And it's just execution, right? So executing the skills in your sport, what do you want that game to look like, right? And just like you said, going walking into the boardroom, painting a picture and experience who's on your right, who's on your left feel your body language and, you know, acting big and confident. And even, even you, that, you that, like that kind you're of in your...
0: of the boardroom, just that familiarity yeah. that you've taken through. Yeah. You're in your best, your clothes
2: are all your best get up and you feel good. And yeah, you rehearse and through the presentation and you even like rehearse and visualize how you feel like emotionally. Right. And sit with that. And the cool thing is again, going back to, to, to the athletes, When you get in that game, so for example, if I knew we were playing Harvard on Saturday, then I go through all those areas that whole week and I'm playing in Harvard in my head. So I know what the rink looks like. I know what it smells like. I know what the jerseys look like. So when I'm having those battles during the game in my mind, it's against Harvard. And so what's my brain going to do when that puck drops? It's going to go, oh, we've already been here like hundreds of times, right? And so right away, you, you reset back down to here and you just go play on autopilot and you don't have to think.
1: Anymore. I was just going to say,
2: you don't have to think. Yeah. Because you don't want to be thinking during it. If you're thinking during a presentation, you're screwed, right? We've probably, I've been there, you know, given a, say, given a talk or something, you can't be thinking during it. You, yeah. do, you know, you want to be on that autopilot and how do you get that confidence? It's that rehearsal piece with the visualization that can really help. So I think that's totally bang on. So that's where it would spill over right into everything. What do you have for your day? You got a meeting? Yeah, well, okay, walk through that and rehearse it in your mind and paint a picture and create an experience. What does it look like? What do you want to happen and
0: and see it happen, right? What about habit? We talked a bit about that earlier and about that routine and habitually coming back to visualization. How do you suggest people go about that? Yeah, that's a good question. I think habits stem
2: from the mindset first, right? And I so I say, you know, grit. How do you Everyone needs grit and but a lot of people think of grit as this physical attribute, but it lives in the mind first, right? So that grit mindset. That's where this visualization can help with and the storywork visualization where if you can create such a vivid movie of where you want your life to go and if you have a purpose behind that and what I teach we define that purpose because it's very important if you don't have the purpose behind it your brain's going to go I know what you really we know what's up here right you need to have that purpose like for me it was to set out and prove everyone wrong and prove myself right and honor that dream that I had right and it was so powerful that there was no other option So if you don't have that behind this movie that you're visualizing, it just doesn't have nearly the same effect. So I think that's where the habits follow that. Right. You can't just it's like diets and New Year's resolutions. There's reasons they don't work. It's because you've temporarily changed these habits or these physical actions. But again, your brain, those subconscious pathways are always you haven't changed them. So you fall off and your brain goes, we know who we really are. Right. And so, yeah, you need to evoke that lasting change. And if you again with the visualization piece and, you know, even with the manifestation and changing your energy that you broadcast out into the world makes a huge difference. Right. And that with that and that allows you to have that grit mindset, which then allows you to put in place different habits where you have it for a reason. And that's because, you know, you have such this trust in this journey of this movie that you've created in your mind and you go live that every day. And you're making sure that you're on the right path in order to get there, if that makes sense.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's the kind of thing that needs, well, it needs the kind of people like yourself who have lived it to start teaching it more and more, because it becomes, I think it's such a powerful tool. And it's actually something like, yes, I've heard a lot about it, but I've never put enough of it into practice. And now having met you and, you know, come across the work you do, I'm like, you know what? It's. I think it's time to start bringing more of this into even just what I'm doing professionally and personally. One thing I'm curious, one thing I just want to do is we're wrapping up. I want to get your final thoughts. but Before that, I'm just going to mention your book. It's called Fighter, Define the NHL Odds. And so that's coming out soon. And I'm looking forward to reading it. It's a really cool story. Otherwise, to wrap up, final thoughts for us and, and for the audience. Yeah, I think we've hit on a lot. I would say final thoughts
2: are your thoughts matter. And, you know, if you can create an experience with those thoughts, you're going to evoke lasting change in in your brain and in your mind of of where you want to go. So and just it doesn't take a lot of time, you know, the visualization piece. and, And that's the other thing is that especially with, you know, with athletic performances, everyone's 90 plus percent physical training, which is still very important. But if we know that the mental side is arguably more important, then there's this big imbalance, right? So, just and I think for athletes, especially, right, is focus more on that. And with everyone in general, this isn't something that takes up a lot of your time. If you can do it five, 10 minutes a day, and again, just spend a few minutes on thinking about a movie, so create an experience of that ending of a movie say what you want your life to look like maybe it's more wealth maybe it's better relationships maybe it's better health be that person and you know live that in your brain because your brain if you can create an experience it actually again doesn't know the difference right so what happens then you in the present are being that person in the future right and you walk around as if that's already happened and therefore you project this different energy you make the right choices and you have different habits because you've already created that experience and your brain, again, doesn't, it thinks it's already happened. Right. So again, that's a long winded version of your thoughts matter. And that's kind of why they matter, right.
0: I think when, when I go through our interviews, I think of, you know, what can the titles be for these? And, you know, one of them to title the interview could be like thoughts matter and how to put it to work kind of thing. Yeah. But anyway, I'm really grateful to meet you. I think it's awesome that, that yeah. we crossed paths and thanks for your time. And I'm sure our our listeners and viewers will enjoy this.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, thanks for having me. And hopefully we, we cross paths again. Maybe you guys spend some more time in the
0: Okanagan here. So yeah, I'll be here. Right on, man. <laughs> thanks, Aaron. Okay, thanks, Corey. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.